All right. So I'm here with Mika. He uh, runs a company that does AI imbued cancer therapy. So can you please tell me a little bit more about that and what you're, work, work, what you're working on? Yeah. Hi, Frank. Um, yeah. So I'm the CEO of Xcure. So Xcure is a health tech company and we really focus on advanced cancer. So um, we spun out of a nonprofit called um, Cancer Commons originally and developed a technology stack that really enables uh, an advanced cancer patient to really come onto our technology and um, um, identify what are the best treatment options, right, that I would or might want to try to pursue. And then not only, and by best treatment options, we kind of mean everything, right? It's not just approved therapies, it's investigational therapies, uh, it's compassionate use. It's the whole kind of menu of options one could consider. And then we help them get access to it. So uh, it's one thing to know you you should consider doing something. It's a completely different thing in our healthcare system today to actually get access to it. Um, so we do that. And then we capture real world data on what happens to those uh, patients. And then we learn from it. Wonderful. How often do you think people are misdiagnosed or get the wrong treatment? based on their diagnosis of cancer? Yeah, I'm not sure um, we really see misdiagnosed patients um, as much as we see patients who have really just exhausted um, what they would think of as the standard options. So what happens as you, your cancer progresses, you basically reach the point where the standard of care says, consider clinical research, right? And consider palliative care, actually consider both at the same time. And then when patients try to pursue research, it's only about 5% of patients who are actually able to pursue that, or the numbers vary somewhere between three and 8%. So the way I always think of that is like 19 out of 20 people who try to participate in, let's say, a clinical trial are unable to do that. And so what they're really left at that point is really considering palliative care, and that's just not a, um, that's just not, not an option, option for a lot of people. Lot of people. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. do. So it's not diagnosis, it's more like, what should I do? I'm in a really, um, difficult time in my life. I've got a lot of challenges ahead of me. I need to make some decisions. And how do I make those decisions? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so can you give me an example of how, how you guys have helped a patient um, and, um, and what their outcome were, was? Yeah, yeah. So we've helped. Um, so we focused really on two types of cancer to start. Uh, and that's been kind of the way we've been gating and scaling our business. Yeah. Um, the first is brain cancer. And the second is um, um, pancreatic cancer. So we have had a lot of um, patients come to us in the brain cancer space. In particular, um, we've had a very large group of pediatric patients come to us with a type of brain cancer um, called DIPG. Um, and DIPG is a very aggressive form of um, brain cancer. It's like feathery tendrils. It goes actually into the pontine glioma, into the brainstem. And these kids live typically for about nine months. And so as part of our commercial activities, as well as our ongoing programs, we've had access to some novel therapies and we've been able to get some of these kids who otherwise would not have been able to get into a clinical trial or onto a research program onto these therapies. And frankly, we've seen a really good response from a number of them. So we've had at least, um, in my experience, two or three kids who've been able to either get out of their wheelchair, go back to school for a period of time. Um, now I will say um, that that these therapies haven't been a cure for this horrible disease, but they've certainly improved the quality of life and extended the life of a number of these, these children in brain cancer. Um, and again, these are children who they and their families would not otherwise have gotten onto a clinical trial. Um, we've done the same thing in pancreatic cancer, though, maybe in a, in a slightly different way. We've partnered um, uh, and we've published two, two posters, one at the AACR meeting and one at ASCO, that's the American Association for Cancer Research and the 
uh, American Society for Clinical Oncology. And in both cases, um, we were following up on the same study. So we have a partner at Huntsman Cancer Institute by the name of Dr. Conan Kinsey. And he had a theory about the combination of um, a drug call, or called a MEK inhibitor in combination with something called hydroxychloroquine, which of course we've all heard about in the news yeah. over again, yeah. of course. So that combination, it looks like it may be efficacious in pancreatic cancer. And these are, you know, one's a generic drug that's been around for a long time. The other one's a, a novel therapy, but it's approved and on the market. But using it together in pancreatic cancer was something new. Um, Conan actually used it in his first case example in April, I want to say it was April of 2019, he published a case study. Um, so this is a single patient case summary. And then we were able to work with him and another and a network of oncologists to essentially gather data on all the other patients who also wanted to try that same thing. And, you know, we've seen a variety of responses, but clearly there's some emerging signal there that we now continue to to pursue. So those are just a couple of examples. Um, Hydroxychloroquine, isn't that used in, um, for malaria? As yes. Well? Yeah. Um, okay. That's interesting. It's, yeah. it's used for a lot of different things, it seems. It's a drug that's been around for a long time. Um, specifically in pancreatic cancer, the, the cells, the cancer cells use, use something called autophagy, where they basically consume themselves as a, as a mechanism. And it looks like hydroxychloroquine blocks autophagy, uh, getting kind of the end of my biology experience here. <laughs> my understanding is that the MEK inhibitors kind of force the cells to do that into that process. And then the hydroxychloroquine blocks that. And so the phrase that comes up is this idea of synthetic lethality. Like, can we basically yeah. pin the cancer in a corner like a boxer would and then get it there? You know, at the, at the conference that you're presenting at, um, the Life Science Conference, um, we have a guy that has a COVID treatment that's going to be speaking. So, cool. But uh, yeah, he, he has a very strong scientific background. So he's, he has a, a cure for COVID, apparently. Um, I'm and, excited. Was it? I'm excited. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah I mean, it's, it, it's not just a matter of like finding the cure. It's like making sure that the cure is known to people, you know, right. like I'm sure there's a lot of cures for a lot of things out there, but it, this, it, it, the, these treatments don't get enough exposure and these technologies don't get enough exposure. So they don't even like see the light of day, you know? So it's, it's, it's really sad though, you know? So, but, um, so what, what do you feel are the, the, I mean, this is kind of, a little bit, uh, a, a little bit of a tangent from what we're speaking on right now. But what do you think most of the the causes of cancer are, and uh, how do you, how do you how can we do the best we can to prevent that? Just yes. good health, or yeah. So nobody I knows I, it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I don't think there's a, like a clear answer. I mean, there's been a lot of research around things like obesity. Um, exposure yeah. to things like cigarette smoking, you know, we all know you shouldn't smoke, it puts you at risk for lung cancer, exposure to toxins in the environment. Um, but I think what's, what's really interesting is if I look at cancer in terms of medical costs, like overall costs for the system, right? Certainly in the United States, it's a top three growing medical cost, but it's in a very small number of people, right? So there's something like 1.6 million cancer cases per year out of the entire U.S. population. So that's not a large number of people, but it's driving a large amount of cost. And in particular, if you look at the split of those who are over the age of 65 versus under the age of 65, it's obviously a disease that affects you as you get older. 
So I think what's happened to us is we're actually causing, um, we're causing is the wrong word. We're seeing rates of cancer increasing as we do a better job of dealing with things like cardiometabolic disease, right? So if we deal with heart attacks and obesity and diabetes, right, and other things that, that were the primary things that, that um, made us ill earlier, and we live longer, then we're going to see the incidence and the number of cancer cases go up yeah. simply because it's a matter of aging. Um, yeah. It seems like uh, epidemiology is such a dubious kind of field. There's so many studies that contradict each other, so, you know, so it's like very hard to identify what causes cancer, or whatever the case may be. Well, I mean, it's something that causes a mutation, right, in your cells, yeah. and then yeah. you know, the cancer, you know, is an uncontrolled growth. Um, and, um, you know, again, I think, you know, there's certainly some clear association or some causality between certain behaviors. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I wouldn't, wouldn't, I, I can't give anyone medical advice. Um, but I can also say that, that the better we do, right, at all the other things that are happening in healthcare, so the more diseases we cure, the healthier we live. Uh, yeah. the more likely it is that we're going to have long enough to experience cancer in our own, own lives. Can you go more into the technical aspects of how your technology works? Yeah. Um, and because uh, I'd like to know more about that and how, you know, it can help people. Yeah. So um, we started with the basic premise, right, that, that patients want to be empowered, right, around their disease case. Hi, Ava. Sorry, my daughter decided Hi. to join us. Hi. It's all good. <laughs> Um, How are you? Do you want to say hi for a minute? Say hi. Hello. So, um, so uh, yeah, it's always guest guest speaker. So, um, so yeah, we start with the premise that patients want to be empowered in their care experience, right? And we've seen that just across the healthcare spectrum with patients looking to be more involved, right, in their care. And we see both patients and their caregivers in the situation where they find out that someone has advanced cancer, really starting to understand the options. So people do an incredible amount of research, right? On yeah. you know, how is this going to affect me? What are genomics? What are the types of tests that I should have? What are the options for treatment? And I mean, you hear it on the nightly news, you know, you simply need to turn on the news, the number of advertisements for new cancer therapies, et cetera. So I think we're all becoming used to that idea. So from a technology perspective, we asked ourselves the question, right? If people are doing this research and they're making decisions, right, and let's say only one out of 20 people get into research, the other 19 people are still being treated, right? Something is happening to them, right? And they have some outcome, good, bad, medium. So how do we learn from that experience, right? And then how do we help those other 19 people? So we did a few things. Number one, we created a platform and system for ingesting patient data captured directly from the patient themselves. So patients give us their data under their right under HIPAA to transfer data to third parties. And we're able to get it directly from the patients or from their institutions themselves. And so we wow. ingest that and we structure it into a database at a level of quality that's submissible to, for instance, the Food and Drug Administration. So think about it, that high quality, capture the source document, extract the information you need. Right? And then we can follow that person's history over time. So that's one piece. That's the following piece. Does this have to be FDA approved or no? Um, the study that we capture it in is yeah. actually a IRB. So it's an ethically reviewed, you know, by institutional review board. It's a clinical trial. So you can find, uh, for instance, XCures on clinicaltrials.gov. You'll find our study. It's, it's led by Cancer Commons as the, the sponsor, but uh, it's called Excelsior. Um, and so... The cool thing about it is that's the registry where the data is being captured. And then 
the registry observes the treatment of patients by their physicians in the context of clinical decision support. So we take the information from the patient that they gave us, the structured information, and then we match it against an options library. So we have a curated set of all of the things you could possibly try to think of in brain cancer and pancreatic cancer, and we curate that. And we curate it both with our internal experts and with external experts, so oncologists. And then every time a patient comes on and they and their doctor are talking about pursuing something new, we use that to essentially learn, learn about what should be in this options library um, and, and update it. So then we basically take the patient, we match them to their possible treatments, and then we have a um, set of technology which you could think of um, simply as a HIPAA-compliant um, uh, uh, messaging system that enables a panel of experts. So because nobody knows what to do with cancer, right? They, yeah. We don't have an answer for what to do. We want to get a panel of experts to weigh in. So we have an algorithm that's basically like a recommender engine. Wow. These are the things you might think about for this cancer patient, no different than you would go on like your Netflix account or Amazon. Yeah. And this, right? is, sold, this is sold to providers, right? Or does it, can, you, can this be sold to consumers too? Um, so we're bringing it to market in a, in a number of different ways. Um, yeah. The first and foremost way is to actually help pharmaceutical companies learn about what's being done with their products outside of their, their, their oh, interesting. Okay. research. Okay. So we have been running um, what are called expanded access or compassionate use programs on our system in such a way that we're able to capture very detailed longitudinal real world data that can then be used to either expand the label of an existing product right? Or to actually help get it approved in the case of uh, expanded access and investigational products. So that's been one uh, market for us. And we're now integrating our, our sightless, this platform technology with leading cancer institutions. So for instance, in pediatric and childhood cancers, we have a partnership with a group called Poetic that's led by Stanford and includes about 10 other research cancer centers, where we're essentially taking their phase one, two clinical trial infrastructure and integrating our sightless help everybody infrastructure to create essentially a platform study, right? Wow. That, okay. yeah. So you learn from each patient and then you develop this recommender agent, uh, recommender algorithm, which is like I said, just like Netflix or Google, these are the things yeah. you think about. And then you have experts vet it. And then if the experts are different than the recommender, then you know you got to update your recommender. So there's a continuous virtuous kind of learning cycle that takes place. And when we see something that works, we do more of it. When we see something doesn't work, we stop. Will you ever sell this con to consumers directly? Um, so we've talked to partners about that. So far to date, what we've done yeah. is basically um, worked under the premise that patients and their caregivers are coming to us. They're giving us this data in exchange for the services. Yeah. So we're actually selling it in some ways. You, you could take it to the patients but they're not paying with cash. They're paying with knowledge and data. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. Cause then the, the, the patients don't have to pay. That's it's right. the, the pharma, pharma companies and pharma and then eventually payers. I mean, think about who, who yeah. puts the bill for this and by payers, it's of course insurance companies, but actually private, you know, uh, employers who provide healthcare insurance, et cetera. Got it. How, 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 how easy is it of, of a sell to sell to uh, pharmaceutical companies? Um, you know, I will say every company that we've talked to has been really engaged and fascinated with kind of the approach that we're taking. I think that it's fairly unique. Um, I think the development, so we are just uh, doing our second large scale commercial contract. So these are our 10 plus million dollar uh, engagements, right? In terms wow. of running, running the studies. 
Um, and we've got a really good pipeline. I think the real question is with anything in cancer is how do you find the right program and put together all the pieces around it? So we're engaged right. now in strategic discussions with people about where is our platform fit into the other kind of traditional research that they're doing. Um, so I think it's been receptive. We certainly have our initial market traction. And uh, in fact, the reason that we're so excited about Capcon and what we're doing is we're looking to raise money to actually increase our commercial footprint as well as yeah. to refine the technology. Wow. I love it. I love it. Um, so are you forecasting in the next like two years? You know, how much are you forecasting in the next two years? Yeah. So we'll do a million dollars. It's our first revenue year. We'll do a million dollars in year one. Um, and, wow. uh, uh, year two will be 5 million and year three will be 15. Um, and we seem to be on track and, you know, tracking towards that though, you know, three years awesome. is a long way away. I would say 2020 and 2021 are pretty locked in. Yeah. The interesting piece about our revenue model is that's just our basically run rate revenues. Yeah. We also take an upside position in a lot of our contracts, meaning we go at risk with the pharmaceutical companies because we're basically crowdsourcing the ideas from the patients and doctors. What did they want to do? Yeah. So we'll go at risk in those contracts. So for instance, our first contract has a royalty stream attached to it. Our second contract has milestones. These are success based milestones. So if these drugs get into the market or if we have a commercial impact from the pharmaceutical company's perspective, there's essentially an upside. The upside value over three years is over $50 million. So five zero. That's, that's awesome. So, so let me ask you this, um, based on the, you know, I want to ask you a question about the technology. So um, experts, how do you define who an expert is? Are, are they all physicians or what, what are the, uh, what, what is the criteria? that you're using to, to be able to define who's an expert and who's not? So they are highly respected oncologists specializing in a particular cancer field. And we're Got fighting it. from leading Got academic it. institutions. Okay, perfect. So what if there's, how, how quickly do you update uh, your technology with novel treatments that are coming out to be, that are proven to work? Um, so like, let's say something is now FDA approved, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, how, how quickly can you get that knowledge into experts' hands or how quickly can you get that novel treatment into the hands of, of or to get in, in your hands to get the, the data in the hands of pharmaceutical companies? So we update, if something's approved and actually comes through the formal processes, like it's a new drug, like yeah. you said, has been approved, we put it into our library right away, right? I mean, it's, it's literally just updating essentially a library entry. This is the drug. Isn't that a lot of work? How do you, how do you even find that data? Like where, where do you go to? So we follow clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, or sorry, we follow all the literature, um, we look on clinicaltrials.gov. You know, when you're working in cancer, let's say a specific cancer like brain cancer, right, where things have been really difficult, it, you end up knowing an awful lot about that domain. Yeah. So that's one piece, right, it's updating. But I think the actually exciting thing for me is not what's approved and available today, because we kind of know a lot of that doesn't work, but what's coming. Like what's that next wave of treatments and more importantly, combinations of treatments, because I, I don't, I think most most people in the cancer space that I talk to actually believe that it's going to be combinations. So two drugs at a time, two or three drugs at a time and how you use them when you use them in the course of therapy, et cetera. So a lot of this like regime uh, or regimen understanding right around when to use different drugs. So the way that we learn about that is in real time on our technology platform. So literally as the experts are having a conversation around the patient's case, we're capturing using our AI, the conversation and then ranking and scoring the things they're talking about. So 
I love the question because what you're getting at is like, why do you go and see a great oncologist? It's because of their experience. It's what's in their head, right? It's but are they, are they staying up to date with the current oh. trends? Because they could be a great oncologist, have a great reputation, but not stop following, you know, what's, what's coming out as novel therapies. Well, I think, first of all, most of them try to, right? Yeah, yeah, most but of them. They all have their specialties. It's like yeah, any yeah. expert, right? Like they, they have an area that they're an expert in. And then if you ask them about something that's maybe not in their immediate yeah. expertise, then they have less knowledge. So that's why this panel discussion, right, that yeah. is, is of particular importance, right? You want to get a bunch of, and frankly, the most interesting cases aren't when they agree. It's when they disagree. Right. And when there's a strong disagreement about what to do and then you want to learn, like, why would expert one say do A and expert two says do B? Why do you guys think these are two different things to do? Like, what is it about those two decisions that's important? And that's learning. I mean, that's how we all learn like what what happened. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some people are going to you don't know who who believes in what. So I'm I'm of the philosophy that. Evidence-based medicine is very, very, very important to, to use to identify what, novel, what, what treatments work and what don't work. Um, but I know there's some people that are probably listening that think, well, what about alternative therapies? Mm-hmm. Would you ever, uh, have you ever considered alternative therapies aside from you know, chemo and radiation? Or, have, or, or is that something that's just not, in, in, it's not what you've ever considered? So um, capture everything. I mean, yeah. I see all sorts of stuff in patient records because they're, yeah. they're pretty honest about what they're trying or doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea is, if you capture all the data, then you can use. Then you can use that data to find new therapies. You can do find that. And I love that. I love that. So I, I think we're pretty agnostic. I mean, obviously, I think most of the advancement is coming from traditional medicine. Yeah. You, you brought up a really great point, Frank, which is evidence-based medicine. So if you think about doing research as generating evidence, right? And if you think about our efficiency right now as being like 5%, right? Or one out of 20 people actually generates an evidence point for us to use, right? You understand where we're going because we want to generate 20 out of 20 points. Of that, that's where the real, that, that's where the real opportunity exists. So that's is, a huge scale in your ability to generate evidence. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. And then the question becomes, how do you do it in a way like if you think about the space of cancer it's huge right we have, have genomics yeah it's not a monolithic field it's it's very complex and so sometimes oncologists i don't know i, I may be wrong but there's certain fields that they they don't feel comfortable with because there's just so much information that needs to be known you know that's right and people are experts so think about it if you go to a, a cancer center you're going to see yeah. an expert for your cancer site if you're in a community oncology setting right that community oncologist sees all the cancers. So like, how could they be an expert in any one of them? In fact, you don't want them to, you want them to be a generalist. So how do you capture data and share knowledge across that ecosystem becomes yeah. really, and this is why learning systems are so important. We've talked about them as a, as a country and as a, and certainly through our regulatory bodies, both uh, Medicare so, Medicaid and HHS for years. And yeah, just that, that is really important. You feel how, how strongly do you feel that, Eventually, a technology like yours, if not yours, uh, will uh, find a cure for cancer. So I'd like to believe there's a cure for cancer. Um, it's very hard. It's, yeah, it's, it's very hard to say that. Yeah. I think that we have an opportunity, and we've seen this in the patients that we have, to um, essentially maximize a patient's shots on goal, right? 
So if you think about it, what we see with a lot of people who are surviving, especially with dire and deadly cancers, right? They are surviving and their cancer comes back and it comes back, but they have multiple courses of therapy and they're doing different and new and interesting things, essentially kind of buying time, buying time. So I believe that as we do that, we can learn from those and that what we're gonna be able to do is actually rapidly advance the cancer space where it's stuck today, right? So cancer is stuck because the research is driven purely by the interest of approving single pharmaceutical agents, right, for the most part. It's not about how you bring together all these things like we talked about, all the therapies, right, and how you put them together. Um, and I believe whether, uh, I believe it's us, which is why I'm doing X gears, right? Yeah. I believe that you have to have a system in which you learn from all the patients, right? And you don't ignore most of the experience. I mean, yeah, I think we're, we're far along from the, uh, the ultimate cure to all cancers, right? But I think eventually we'll have that, you know, maybe like 50 to 100 years down the line, we'll have something that is clearly identified as the cause of cancer and we'll have something that is a novel treatment that works. I hope so. And you know what? We've made great advances. Like if you look at a lot of early stage cancers, right? Colon cancer and breast cancer and another others, they're, they're really, you know, and survivorship is up. Um, I think yeah. it was the last American Cancer Society report spoke about survivorship and we're making progress, but there's a long way still to go. Yeah, there definitely is a long way still to go. It's such a horrible thing to to get. And then how do you decide how do you decipher whether you're gonna go through all the, the therapy because the therapy is is sometimes gruesome, you know. Mm -hmm. Um but it's it's the thing that we know that works the best and increases lifespan right now, as of now, based on evidence based medicine. So but it's just such a hard decision, you know. Yeah. You know, uh and I can't imagine what people go through you know, after they find out they have cancer. Well, there's probably a lot of pressures from family. Hey, you need to do this therapy or that therapy or whatever the case may be. Well, I, you and, know, it's not always the same thing. I, look, I lost my father to a complication from bladder cancer, um, right? But it wasn't the bladder cancer that killed him. It was a blood clot, right? Based on the, the, the treatments yeah. that you're going through. So like, even when you choose treatments, right? they carry their own risks. So if you're doing chemotherapy, you're going to be really sick, right? And there's going to be complications associated with it. So you need to balance those risks. Um, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of other people also where the decisions about, you know, quality of life, right? And what's important to you and the time scale and, you know, versus let's say being very risk seeking, like if you're young, right? And you're pretty healthy and you find out that you have cancer, and you want to beat it, it makes sense that you're going to be way more aggressive than if let's say you're much older and you're already sick with other comorbidities, right? And you're looking for something else from the therapy. And those are just different decisions that need to be made. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so where do you see your company? Like, so you must have, have to hire a lot of people to, to be able to ma manage this and make sure this is effective. Yeah, we're actually surprised. We're, I, I think I've, I've been surprised certainly on how efficient we can be. So the big areas for cost for us, right? When you think about what it takes to get this done has to mostly do with data handling, but there is just a host of people that have been working on data interoperability, right? And for instance, patients' rights to own their own data and to transfer yeah. it. And then natural language processing, right? For getting the data, because most of the interesting stuff is not in the structured data. It's in like the physician notes and that sort of place. But that's moving much faster, right? And more effectively than I thought. And so we've been able to, with a pretty small team in North Carolina, which is where our clinical ops team really handled the patient volume. And I think we, we're starting to get the scale that we want um, there. 
The other side of the business is really a data science question. So if you're going to do a lot with very small data, right, meaning that um, we don't have, like if you look at all the retrospective information that's out there, the cure for cancer is not in the existing data, right? Because otherwise we'd have it, right? Yeah. So the question is, with very little data, how do you generate the new interesting stuff and the algorithms to drive that decision making? That's going to take us, um, I think, going to be a major, a major yeah. area for innovation and development. For now, us. have you gone through an investment round already, or? No, so we raised a seed round. Um, okay. um, we've raised over five million dollars so far in seed capital. Okay. Um, uh, we closed that, and then now we're doing an A round. We're actually doing a, a I think, a smaller, like a five to ten million dollar A is what we've been been out there talking to investors about. And really the purpose here is to take the cancer verticals that we're in. So brain, pancreatic, pediatrics, and ovarian cancer, and really kind of work through the proof points here. Because we have the contracts, right? We have the commercial footprint in place. We want to take something all the way through the clinic, take it all the way to the FDA, right? And get it, get it approved. And that's still going to take us another year or two. Assuming that's correct, that that happens. And as I said, we're on track to do it then we'll do an additional large scale round and get into the bigger cancer. So lung, breast, colon, uh, et cetera. Got it. I love it. I love it. Um, what, what got you into this initially? I, I know that there was a complication with your dad, right? So yeah. but was it, was it a personal thing? I feel like people in the medical space, medical device space, they have some personal reason why they get into the, the business they're in. So everybody at X years has gotten into this for some personal reason, but it's cancer. So it touches everyone in some way or another. So, I mean, my own journey is I've been in healthcare for 22 years. I spent the first 10 years kind of focused on basic science, biology, chemistry, technology, um, and actually commercializing technology for those two fields. So after 10 years, I decided I needed to be closer to the patients because basic science is interesting. I find it fascinating today, but I wanted to do that. And I got into using evidence and actually evidence-based medicine. My first startup was a company called um, Archimedes Inc. that was owned by Kaiser Permanente. I was the uh, commercial lead for that. And in that case, we were simulating, you know, think of virtual humans like a Sim City where people get sick and they gain weight and they get diabetes, et cetera, and trying to simulate what happens in real world um, populations. Um, and so we did that and we ended up commercializing it to the pharmaceutical industry for things like market access and health economics. And then I was the chief commercial officer for another company in that space. So I just had this moment of epiphany where like, I'm like, I've spent my career in some ways helping to make drugs more expensive, right? <laughs> or, right. <laughs> or. Uh, doing work on guidelines that affect large populations of people. And like all of that has been actually, it's been fulfilling, right? And a great learning experience, but I wanted to do something where I could look at what my company did and I could look at a real person, like a real patient and say, what my team and I did has helped this person, right? With something in their life, like really directly. Yeah. And part of it actually came from the experience with my father, but I wasn't looking from oncology specifically. It just made me really realize that the, the major problem, the major problem, like right? a second leading cause of death, or is it, is that the first or second? Yeah. Something like that. Cancer. Uh, yeah. Second, I think uh, the heart disease is first or something. Yeah. It's heart disease. If you look at costs, it's like cardiometabolic. So heart disease, obesity, blood pressure, like all of that is like one uh, pain and opioids and drug addiction is like a whole other big, big cost center. And then cancer comes along is, is my understanding of it. Yeah, definitely. That's great, man. Um, well, tell me about your, you know, you have a family, right? You have a I do. Daughter. Been, my daughter, uh, my wife, Noray is not here. Yeah. Um, I have a son, Isan. He's, uh, uh, 
He's a junior, just finished his junior year at Berkeley. Um, so, oh, nice. Yeah, so we've got a, a wonderful. That's great. A big group of us here, uh, as you've seen. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, four people. You know, four. and you have is he is he on campus? At your son? Uh, well, he's been living off campus uh, for this last year. So he okay. transferred in for his junior year, and then, um, you know, what a weird year for kids in college, right? They've just spent it. I'm, I'm really. Oh yeah, yeah. What I meant was normally is he on campus? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's but cool. I live like a mile from Berkeley, so. Yeah. Does he have an interest an interest in medicine or, like, uh, he, personally? You know, he's worked. Uh, or done some internships with companies related to health economics, but he's an economics major. And so frankly, what I tell him is, uh, you know, early on in your career, focus on the base, right on the core and economics can be applied to a lot of things if it ends up being healthcare. Oh, yeah. Right. But there's so many things that you can do um, that you should explore them all. Right. I always think that's the best way to go. Yeah, I feel like a lot of uh, economics majors work at the Goldman Sachs yes. for whatever reason. Banking, finance. Yeah. Banking, banking, finance. Um, just okay. look at what's going on in our society right now, like everything with COVID-19, like healthcare and uh, economics tie together, right? So we have this whole issue of like shelter in place and everything that we've been doing to keep ourselves safe versus opening up our economy, right? Yeah. So, you know, all this stuff is just so highly interrelated. So I, I just, uh, my wife just delivered a, a daughter um, Woo! <laughs> about Congratulations. Uh, two, two months and one week ago. Awesome. Um, so we have a dog that's about two months and one week. You actually um, look fairly well rested, Frank. <laughs> uh, well, I, we've, we've kind of figured out a schedule that works. <laughs> so, but initially it was like horrible. It was like the worst experience ever. Is the first, first child? Was that? Yeah, first child. Yep. Yeah. And we're not used to it. Like, you know how like early stage parents, they freak out over every little thing? Mm-hmm. Like. I was just like freaking out of everything. Like, oh my gosh, is she coughing? Is she, is she sick or, you know? So it's interesting. Um, so a great friend of mine once told me, he said, when you're pregnant, right, as a family, there's like yeah. a million books, right? Everybody will buy you a book on what to expect when you're expecting and et cetera and what's going to happen. And then you have a child and they give you the child and they say, good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no manual after that. Yeah, I was talking to uh, one of the speakers at the, this next conference, Jeremy. I don't know if you know him. Um, but, uh, he was like, this guy owns like a hundred million dollar company. And he was like, when he had, had his first child, when he put the child into the, the baby seat in the back at, for the first moment, uh, at that, at that moment, he was like, why do they just give me this baby? I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> well, he's lucky he got this installed. I remember I drove to the fire department. I'm like, help me put this thing in. Cause everyone, I was so afraid I was going to do it wrong. Right. And he's like, you got to go to the fire department and make sure you did it right. Yeah. Like, biggest yeah. thing was, yeah. biggest thing was swaddling. Have you, do you remember doing that swaddling? I do. Oh the, my gosh. Not all babies are happy to be swaddled. So yeah, that's why does everybody say that everybody's all the babies are, are should be happy to be swaddled. I, it doesn't make sense. Like, my baby just hated it. She was like, no, I don't want, I don't want this. No, don't do it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting experience. So like raising your daughter, like, what was that like? You know, was there any? Oh, it's been wonderful. So she's eight now. Um, and, uh, she's been going to, so she speaks Spanish and English, um, huh. which is great. I speak Finnish and English. So we share English. Um, people always ask me, like, well, why don't you teach her Finnish? And I'm saying, well, there's not a lot of Finns, right? 
Um, but she's been great. You know, she's grown up over the years. It's just, you know, last yesterday we went to the beach, for instance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the older they get, the farther they roam. So she's swimming at the beach here in Alameda. And she keeps going further and further out. And I'm like, suddenly I'm like that terrified parent. I'm like running up and down the beach. I'm like yelling, come back, come back. And people are like kite surfing by her and she's having a ball. And it's actually really shallow. So she can stand up and it's only like waist high water pretty far out, but she's yeah. far out. Yeah. And I'm turning around. I'm telling my wife, like, take myself, take my iPhone, take my this. <laughs> I'm go right out there. I'm going on a rescue mission. <laughs> a rescue mission. And, and, when she came back in, she was just annoyed with me. She was like, what, what's, what's your problem? She's like, I'm fine. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm like, no, I was worried. She's like, what if you weren't fine? So, you know. Yeah. They, um, Will that feeling ever go away, do you think? You no. know? No? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm always worried, for sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for doing the podcast. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, is there anything else you want to say to any investor, prospective investor that may want to invest in your company? And then how would they reach out to you? Yeah. So, uh, well, people should reach out to us. Um, well, you can, uh, I think you guys are sharing contact information, aren't you, with all the investors online? But, um, you know, my email is Mika, M-I-K-A, at xcures, xcures.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyone reach out to me um, or, or directly through our contact us um, uh, on our website. You know, I, I would say that, in the space that we're in in healthcare, I think the really important thing is what is the opportunity to do well by doing good, right? So right. a lot of healthcare, frankly, has been driven by uh, monetary transactions, right? And there's a lot of money in healthcare, which is why everyone operates in it. But healthcare also presents these really unique opportunities, and I believe we're one of them, to just have enormous societal impact, right? And to do that and also make a lot of money. And when you think about it from that perspective, there are just these really cool opportunities, and I believe cancer is one of those. And I think that's why cancer has remained a primary investment focus for many, many people, um, a huge unmet medical need, and it's one that continues to grow. And so um, I would ask investors, come along with us. This is going to be an absolutely phenomenal um, company. Um, the growth is, is already there, and there's just so much more to do. And um, frankly, as much as uh, I always think I'm doing this as much because it's a business, as it is also something that I'm going to need at some point in my life. Yeah. Right? So. There's nothing wrong with making a lot of money as long as it's a honorable thing, yeah. you know, that you're doing. Well, do good. Right. Yeah, do absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, all right, cool. Thank you so much for doing the podcast and look course, forward to friend. doing another one in person eventually. Yeah, absolutely. One day, one day in the not too distant future. And I'm very much looking forward to the conference and uh, meeting a whole lot of new people. So um, thank you very much, Frank. Hey, hey, one second here.